As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 81 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. Well, recently my pastor asked me to sub for him in our adult catechism class. We have a really great catechism class going on in our parish where we're going through the book Apologetics and Catholic Doctrine by Archbishop Michael Sheehan. It's an old book, but which has been revised a number of times. It's, I think Baroness, yeah, Baroness Press releases it. And the chapter he wanted me to review was a chapter on faith. And so I took this topic, and I, what I did was I used the, what the book said as the, uh, as the basis for what I was going to talk about, but I went a little bit further than what the book said. And I ended up talking about the five different meanings of the word faith. And how, you know, because the word faith has a lot of different meanings and it can be confusing at times. In fact, it's part of the cause of the dispute between Protestants and Catholics is the whole meaning of the word faith. Now, one thing I wanted to note is I actually forgot to hit record button when I started the class. So you'll notice the beginning, I kind of make a joke about this class is about faith because of the fact that I'd forgotten and I told them, okay, I'm going to start recording now. But really, it was just some introductory comments that you missed. Okay, without further ado, here is the five meanings of the word faith. Okay, so we're talking about faith. <laughs> and so there are five different meanings to the word faith, really. One of them is a kind of secular, general, common usage meaning. And the other four are theological meanings. So there's actually four different theological meanings to the word faith when we use the word faith. In fact, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, that's one of the reasons why there is a dispute between Protestants and Catholics with the meaning of the word faith. It's part of our dispute is we actually mean different things sometimes when we talk about that word. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But the first meaning of the word faith is simply a synonym for the word belief. When you say to somebody, I have faith in you, or I have faith that this will happen, that you'll take care of this, what you're basically meaning is, the dictionary definition, in fact, is confidence or trust in a person or thing, belief that is not based on proof. So that first definition, confidence or trust in a person or thing. So basically, faith or belief means that you trust in somebody else. You trust that what they're saying is true. For example, I've never been to China in my life, yet I do have faith that China exists. In fact, I know a lot of things about China, even though I've never been there. Well, why is it? I can't prove to you right here, right now, that China exists. What I can do, though, is I can tell you all these things I know about China, and you have to trust that what I'm saying, if you've never been there, you have to trust that what I'm saying is true, that there really is such a thing, a country as China. And so it's an act of trust. It's a belief in the word of another person. And in this case, when we mean it in this meaning, another human person. So if you grew up in a family where your parents told you there was a, 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 a planet called Timbuktu where aliens lived, you would believe that because you'd have trust in your parents. You'd, you'd have faith in them. And then one day when you found out that wasn't true, you'd lose your faith in them. But that's all that is is a human, is, is a human belief in another person. And 
The second definition they had for that within this, the, the idea of belief is belief that is not based on proof. And that's a very common way we, that a lot of people today think of faith. They think of it as something like it's a leap of faith. And you see that as faith is contrasted with reason or faith is contrasted with fact. But as we'll see when we talk about the theological meanings of faith, that's not, that's not what we mean by faith when we talk about theologically. It's not something we don't have proof for. It's a different type of proof. We can have certainty with faith just as much as we can. I, can have, I am certain that this podium is right here right now. Well, I can also be certain through faith that God exists. Even though I can't see him right now, I still have that certainty. As much certainty that God exists as I do that this podium exists right here. So, again, this is just a very common definition of the word faith. It's a non-theological, non-biblical definition of the word faith. Okay, so I, but just so you'll note that, of course, it's related to the theological definitions as we get into them, as we talk about faith in another person. It's just the person that we have faith in changes and becomes a divine person or persons. Okay, the second definite, the second meaning of the word faith is as an act of the will. So faith as an act of the will. And this is the, the, the definition would be by which we, re, the, the act by which we receive God's life. And so this is, in a lot of ways, what the, the biblical sense in a lot of ways, like for example, when St. Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith, this is what he's talking about, that somebody makes an act of the will in which they make a decision, they, they, they make a fundamental choice for God. They give a fundamental yes to God. They say, I will live my life for, for God. And this act is a, what would be called a salvific act, meaning an act that can save. And in the book, um, in... Uh, is he a cardinal? Archbishop Sheehan's book on page 296, he talks about this and he says, no one who has come to the use of reason, no one who has come to the use of reason can be saved unless he makes a definitive or explicit act of faith in the existence of one God who will reward the good and punish the wicked. Each one of us, I'm assuming, has made this act of faith. Now, it's not necessarily like in my Protestant days, we would think of this as a, as a we, we could tell you the date it happened. I mean, I could literally tell you where it happened for me and the date it happened in one sense because we, make a, you know, we made a big deal about the fact that you give your life for Christ, you make this act of faith. But really, it's more than that. That's a very kind of narrow definition of that, a narrow way of thinking of that act of the will I'm talking about. Because, like, for example, my father-in-law, who's passed away now, he was a Catholic his whole life, I don't think he ever said to himself one day, I am going to follow God with my whole life. Yet he did follow God with his whole life. He just, it just kind of happened over time. Well, that is the act of the will I'm talking about. He might not even be, been completely conscious about it, but at some point in his life, he just started saying, I'm living for God. I'm living as a Catholic. And so one thing that's important about this idea of faith as an act of the will is that you need God's grace to even do it. You can't make that act of will without first having God's grace. You know, everything is grace in a sense, in that God 
gives us the grace so that we can have that act of the will. If it was not true that, that you can make an act of the will without, if, you, if it was true that you can make an act of the will without God's grace, then really we would believe what we're always accused of believing by Protestants, that we believe in works. Because then it would just be our job. I mean, it would be our, you know, we could save ourselves, in other words. But that's not true. So God makes an act, God gives us grace so that we can make this act of the will, this act of faith. Another thing important is, when I'm talking about faith like this, the theological meaning, it's not the same thing as belief that we think of you know, commonly, but also only a Christian can do this. A non-Christian, even a, a, a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever, they can never, I mean, as they, they could one day, but they have not ever made an act of faith that we're talking about here. Because it is something God gives you as a grace, and it's directed towards the triune God. And so therefore, it's just not possible. Now, God, of course, could give them the grace to make it at some point in their life before they die. But if they haven't made that, if if they're practicing as a Muslim, for example, they haven't made, even though we might say they have the Muslim faith, they have faith in Muhammad or whatever, that's not what we're talking about. That's using the same word. That's basically a belief. It's a human belief. They have a human belief in their God, what they say is their God, or they have a human belief in Mohammed or, or whoever, Buddha, whoever it might be. But this is theological, so it's only a Christian can make this act of the will. Now, a very important part about this is, because it's an act of the will, it invo- when we talk about faith like this, here's where the big confusion gets a lot of times with Protestants and their definition of faith. This is an act of the will, not an act of the intellect. We'll talk about the act of the intellect in a minute. But what that means is it's a giving of your entire person to God. So yes, you're making this act of faith that you're saying, I'm giving myself to God. Well, that then includes faith, it includes hope, and it includes love. St. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, he says, we have faith working through love. And that's really probably the best definition when you say, you know, do you believe in faith and works? We say we believe in faith working through love. In other words, if you make this act of the will, if you make this act of the will of faith, then you will have hope in God, in, in the final destination of all people, the final destination of creation in heaven. You have, and you have love. And you have love of God first, of course, and you have love of your neighbor. If you don't have hope and you don't have love, then you don't have faith. And so when, they, when, when a Protestant says, you know, you're saved by faith alone... They're wrong, but you could almost, you could figure out a way to make them right by saying, well, if by faith alone you mean faith, which also includes hope and love, okay, I'll go with you on that. Because they're always interconnected. You can't have one without the other. Now, as an aside, one day in heaven, we'll only have love because there'll be no need of faith and there'll be no need of hope because we'll see, you know, faith is always a trust in somebody that you can't see. You can't see the reality, but we'll see the reality in heaven. And of course, we don't need to hope for heaven when we're in heaven anymore. So... Um, so that's, that's important. To know. So we're not saved by faith alo- alone. We're saved by this act of will, which includes love and it includes hope. Now, another point of this is that, like I mentioned before, this faith isn't a leap of faith in the sense that you have no idea what it is you're getting into and you don't have any certainty of what it is. You're not, I mean, it's like people think of faith kind of like optimism. Like you really... I almost don't want to use the word hope because I don't mean it in a theological sense. I mean it in kind of the human sense. Well, I hope this is all true. It'd be, I really hope when I die, you know, it ends up being good for me 
and things are good. That's not at all what this faith is. It's a certainty that, yes, we will be saved. And so, and yes, God exists. And yes, I believe in him and I give my whole life to him. Cardinal Newman had a great quote where he said, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. Meaning, faith, the opposite of faith, in, in one sense, would be doubt. In, in, in another definition of faith. But the point is, you can have difficulties with your faith. That doesn't necessarily mean you have any doubts about it. I mean, you not, might not be able to explain how it is, you know, that, the, that God is three persons, you know, in one divine nature. You might not even be able to explain, uh, well, you definitely, none of us can probably explain how bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. You might not really understand it fully, so you might be difficult to understand that. But that doesn't mean you don't have faith that it's true. And so when we talk about this faith act of the will, we're talking about that, that where we give ourselves completely to God. And again, it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing, but it really is. And this is what can bring us to salvation. Now, of course, if you're not baptized when you make this act of the will, you will want to get baptized. I mean, so it, it's like that's the follow-through of this. God gives you that grace where he gives you that, where he gives you grace to say yes to God. And when you say yes to God, if you say yes to God fully, then you're saying yes to his church. If you say yes to his church and you want to enter into that church, you want to be baptized and be grafted onto Christ. So another, another uh, important point of this faith is act of the will is it can be lost. You can lose your faith. That is possible. I actually believe before I became Catholic, I believed in once saved, always saved. I remember in college I told my Catholic roommate that, and he just started laughing. He's like, that's so stupid. <laughs> that's Apologetics 101. Um, <laughs> but it did make me very defensive, and I actually abandoned the idea like literally a week later because I did realize it was stupid. Um, but the point is, because it's an act of will, it is, we do have free will. And so we can choose, just like God can give us the grace, we can choose to give our life to God, we can also choose, by rejecting God's grace, to no longer give our life to God, to live our, for ourselves. And so we can lose this faith. It could happen in some great one act, like some major thing happens in your life, and you just decide, forget it, I'm no longer going to uh, practice Catholic faith, I don't believe in God anymore. But what happens usually is it's over time, because what happens is you start letting little things, you start making little decisions, little acts, that distance you from God, maybe venial sins that continue to pile up and pile up and pile up until finally you commit some type of mortal sin and you're, you're broken your communion with God and you basically no longer live your life for God. So, you know, we don't believe that once you make this act, it's like somehow it turns you into some automaton, some robot that can't change its mind one day. And really, that's what, that, that is the way it should be because that's what love is. Because think about it, if, if you, when you love somebody, you, know, you want them to love you, but you want to be freely chosen, and you're not going to force them, if they somehow fall out of love with you, I mean, you might do everything, you're going to do everything you can to change that, but you can't, like, it would be, like, against love to force them. And so God doesn't force us to remain faithful to him and remain in love with him. So the act of the faith is an act of the will can be lost. Okay, the third meaning of the word faith is act of the intellect. Is it is an act of the intellect? Oh, my marker just ran out. Okay. Let's see if this one works. There we go.
real quick, just to make sure you know, we all understand, the human soul is made up of two things, a mind and the, a will. And so the mind thinks and the will chooses. And so that's basically fundamentally who we are as, as human beings, as persons. Angels have this as well. You have, a, you have an intellect, which means you can think, and you, can, and, then, and you have a will that chooses. And usually they work in tandem because your intellect decides, okay, what is the best option to choose, and then your will chooses it. And so faith is both an act of the will and an act of the intellect. When I say it's an act of an intellect, the definition in, the, uh, in Sheehan's book on page 286, it says an act of faith is an act by which we, with the help of God's grace, firmly and piously believe on his word, truths revealed by him. If you notice, it's very similar to the act of the will. Act of the will, in a sense, is you're giving your whole life to God. Act of the intellect is you're saying, okay, I believe the things that you're telling me, God, that you've revealed to your church, you revealed to me, are true. And I believe it because I believe your word. I trust you. And so that kind of gets back to the original meaning. But what it's doing is instead of belief in a person, in a human person, we believe God himself. We trust his word. And this is also, just like act of the will, it requires God's grace. Because the truths of revelation are such that we can't know them by our intellect alone. We can't know, we can't, you know, even Thomas Aquinas, if he wasn't, if he wasn't given revelation, could not have figured out the Trinity on his own. It takes God's grace. It takes revelation. And so, basically, this act of the intellect, this is, it really should be, in a sense, acts of the intellect, because this is any time in which you believe something that the church teaches definitively, when you believe something part of revelation, and you believe it because God has said it. I mean, we, we know nothing about God except for, and we know some basic stuff about God through human reason, which we learned about in the book. But we don't really know anything about his inner life except for what he's told us. And so it's an act of faith to believe that God is three persons in one divine nature. And that's something we know by God's grace, but also because he tells us that. Now, the acts of the intellect are also they're kind of prompted by the will. These are interrelated in a lot of ways. Because if you make acts of the intellect in which you believe things that God has revealed, you're going to want to give your life to God and make that fundamental act to him. But if you make an act, a fundamental act to him, you're going to want to believe the things he teaches us, right? I mean, so really, in, in fact, in the book, he kind of just combines this into one, but I thought it would be easier to explain if we divide it into two. And in a sense, if you look at it, you can see faith involves the whole person. Because remember I said a human person, the human soul, is made up of, of an intellect and a will, made up of a mind and a will, and so therefore it thinks and chooses. All, that stuff, all, all of that activity of thinking and choosing is directed towards God. And so in faith with him. Now again, I'll, I'll re-quote Cardinal Newman because it's, it's a good quote that applies in almost all of these. Where he said, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. And so we can be certain of the truths of the faith. We can be certain, for example, of papal infallibility. Even though we might have difficulties with how it is practiced or how it is happened over time in history or currently or anything like that. And so those can be difficulties, but that's not the same thing as doubting. Because, for example, if my... 
if you know if you're if you're a child and your parent teaches you about I don't know something uh, about, like about world history, maybe teaches you for the first time about Nazi Germany, you might have a difficulty understanding how uh, people could be so evil, how Hitler could do such terrible things, and all these. That might be very difficult for you to understand how because maybe in your upbringing you just can't conceive of somebody being that bad. That doesn't mean you doubt what they're telling you because you trust them completely. They say that there's a Nazi Germany that Hitler took over and they killed all these Jews and all this stuff. Well, you believe it. You have faith, you have trust because you believe the person teaching you. And likewise, all these, the the truths of the Catholic faith, we believe because we trust the one who gives them to us. And obviously the one who ultimately gives it to us is God, but he does it through different agencies, through scripture and tradition. And we trust the church, the magisterium, to interpret those, revelate, those, those sources of scripture and tradition such that it, it remains true and we can believe it. So does that make sense how, I mean, I, like I said, divide this into two, but in one sense it's one, that faith is an act, an act of the will, an act of the intellect. Are there any questions about those two areas of, or even the first one, those meanings? Anybody have a question about that? covered it perfectly <laughs> or you're asleep you didn't get the coffee <laughs> okay oh by the way i'm supposed to leave sometime at the end because father said this lesson we we're supposed to allow for questions about the entire first half which i'm supposed to then answer so i'm glad i read the book but you know so i'll try to do that unless i like like i said unless I see my daughter like i am me or something i'll cut it short okay so faith is just belief human belief it's an act of the will act of the intellect the fourth meaning of faith is the virtue of faith. This might be the one that's probably most commonly known, this theological term, to most of us, it being a virtue of faith. And the definition in the book, uh, page 298, it says, Faith is a supernatural virtue infused into our souls by God, which makes us able and willing to give an unhesitating assent to all the, real, real, uh, all the revealed truths which he has commanded the church to propose to us for belief. Okay, so what does that mean? Basically, it means God's helping us do these things. God's helping us make these acts of faith. He's giving us the supernatural virtue, the theological virtue of faith. Now, what are the three theological virtues? Faith, hope, and love. Right, exactly. And so, these three th- theological virtues we receive at baptism. Basically, what's happening is God is doing everything he can to save us. I mean, he's given us every single help he can. He gives us grace so that we might make an act of the will for him. He gives us grace so that we might understand and accept the truths that he has given to us. And he also even gives us these supernatural virtues, which he infuses into our soul baptism, so that we can have the virtue, so we can make these acts that that I'm talking about. They give us the salvation. And so... It is a gift. It's really just a gift of God's mercy. He doesn't have to do it. I've seen him do any of this. But it's really a, a, a gift of his mercy that what he's saying is, you know, I know through the fall that you have a, a, a desire against me, you know, concupiscence. You tend to want things that are against me. And so I'm going to give you a help so that you actually will be able to follow me and believe in me. Now, remember, a virtue... The most important thing to remember about virtue is that it's a habit. And so like any habit, it can be weakened or it can be strengthened. 
So although God gives us this virtue at baptism, we can weaken it through our own actions, or we can strengthen it. And so, for example, let's say you start having difficulties with, with various te- some teaching of the church. Maybe there's some specific teaching of the church. Let's say it's purgatory or something like that. And you have difficulties. And you start reading books against purgatory about why it's not true. You start reading maybe some fundamentalist books about why purgatory is a lie and why Catholics invent purgatory and all that stuff. Well, then that starts to build up. And although 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt, they can lead to a doubt. Because basically what you're doing is you're weakening through, through your habits of, of you know, reading about anti-Catholic stuff and things against purgatory. You're weakening that virtue until you might come to the point where you eventually deny the truth of purgatory, that purgatory exists. And so you've, in, that, in that case, you've lost because now you've lost that virtue because you've committed a mortal sin if you actually deny something that the church definitively teaches and knowingly and, and willingly deny it. And so you're basically now also making an act of the will against God. You see again how all these are interrelated to each other. And so what we need to do then is for the virtue, any of the virtues, but including the theological virtues, we need to practice them so that they get stronger. Just like an athlete, if he doesn't practice, he's not going to succeed in, when he is uh, competing in the race. Likewise, if we don't practice these virtues, we're going to lose them eventually. We're going to lose them in the race. And so in the case of, of the virtue of faith, we would want to practice them by doing things like we're doing tonight, where you learn about the faith, where you learn about what the church teaches, and so this is a, a great way going to catechism class. It's what you're doing with your children when you send the catechism class, is you're strengthening this virtue of faith so they understand it, so those difficulties don't eventually lead to a doubt. Again, a difficulty isn't the same thing. You can have difficulties, and that's not a sin, but if you allow them to kind of fester in you, then eventually they could become a doubt. If you don't try to answer them, because you can have a difficulty and say, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to go find out. I'm going to email Father John Paul and ask him about it. I'm going to ask, you know, Brother Brent, I'm going to, you know, call into Catholic Answers Live or something like that to, to try to get an answer to that question. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're always continuing to strengthen that virtue that's given to us. Again, it's infused in our souls by God at baptism. So we all have it if we've been baptized, unless we, unless we choose to lose it. And so... Again, if you do end up losing it by denying some tenet of the faith, basically you've committed the moral sin of unbelief, that you now you know, no longer believe what God teaches. And if you look at all the different ways these are connected, what you're basically saying, I don't trust God anymore. If you don't trust God anymore, then obviously you're going to be separated from him. And so that's, that, that gulf will get even wider and wider if you don't do something to help it. And what are some other ways that we can help build up the virtue of faith beyond just uh, going to catechism, prayer, going to this, uh, receiving the sacraments. I mean, one of the things that the sacraments do, especially the second of the Eucharist, is that it gives you strength, and it, it bolsters that sacramental grace you receive in baptism, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. It strengthens them. So we want to do things like prayer and, and sacrifice and sacraments and you know, learning about our faith. All those things will help build that virtue of faith. So that's the fourth definition. The third theological definition is it's one of the three theological virtues that were given that are given to us at baptism. Okay, the final definition of the meaning of the word faith is as a rule 
or another term that's often used is deposit. Whoops. And what I mean by that is you will hear the rule of faith or the deposit of faith. And this meaning is different in a lot of ways. And the other four are all connected in a way because they all are a belief in a person. They're like an action in a sense. They're, they're a verb in one sense in that you're doing something. Whereas when I talk about it as a rule or a deposit, it's more a noun. It's the content. Meaning the rule of faith or the deposit of faith, that's what we believe. And so in one sense, you could say what we believe you know, is, is, is in this book. You know, everything that's in this book is what we believe. If you, if you get a catechism, that kind of lays out what we believe. And I think last week somebody asked about like, where you can find out what's, uh, what is official teaching, things like that. And I think Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott is the best book. I meant to bring it and I forgot. I just realized because I think it listed very well. But one of the things it does is after each uh, doctrine it lists, it says what level, so to speak, that doctrine is. And the top one is de fide, which means of the faith. In other words, it is, it is to be believed by our intellect. And if we don't believe it, if we reject it, then we are actually rejecting God and making act of the will against him. And so we could lose the virtue of faith and so how it's all connected. So not every teaching of the Catholic faith is de fide, meaning you have to accept it. But when we talk about the deposit of faith, or the rule of faith, we really are, in one sense, we're really just talking about those things that are truly, that we have to believe, not the extraneous things. And so I think, uh, was the Brother uh, Henry, I think when you were talking about limbo, like limbo is one of those things that's kind of in limbo uh, when it comes to where, where it stands. But it's not a de fide teaching. But it's something that's been commonly believed over the centuries, and it's a teaching that flows out of things that are of the deposit of faith. Like, for example, what happens at baptism, how we're born in original sin, things like that, and what it, mean, how, what it takes to get into heaven. So limbo wouldn't be strictly speaking in the deposit of faith, but things like you know what baptism does, uh, you know how baptism is necessary for salvation, how uh, the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, how God is you know three persons in one divine nature. Those things, those are part of the deposit of faith, and the way we receive this deposit of faith, uh, Saint Irenaeus, he was a church father in the mid to late second century. He had a, um, he wrote a book called Against Heresies, and I wish he wrote books like that. I mean, wouldn't that be great? They see, I, mean, I mean, it would be a really big book these days, but, um, and hopefully nothing I say tonight would be included. Uh, so, but Senior Irenaeus, he was combating against um, her, heretics called the Gnostics, and they had some really funky beliefs. In fact, my daughter is at uh, Franciscan University Steubenville, and She's taken a class in church, early church fathers, and so she called me up. She's like, Dad, we're writing a paper on Irenaeus, and you know, we're talking about the Gnostics, and none of us understand what the Gnostics, who, what they believe, or how, how, what, what the heck their teachings are. I said, Lucy, nobody else does either. I said, that's the whole secret is. They are so confusing, and so we, and we don't really have any of their writings. We have the people who, who fought against them, their writings, so we all see it secondhand. But they had some bizarre beliefs. But one of the things, this, so this was about 150 years after the time of our Lord. And they claimed that they had the true teachings of Jesus. And of course, Irenaeus and the other Orthodox bishops and, and believers say, no, we have the true teachings of Jesus. 
And so Irenaeus had to prove, why is it that you should believe Irenaeus, he was a bishop, by the way, and not the Gnostics? And he specifically says, in this book against heresies, he says, the Gnostics claim that their teachings are consistent with Scripture. And so they, and they have ways that they can prove things from Scripture. We say the same thing. Sounds familiar, right? And that's exactly what we say with, with Protestants today, is they all claim, oh, our teachings are consistent with Scripture. And they even, and the, and the Gnostics would even say that we hand on, you know, we have traditions that come down to us from previous generations, and so therefore what we believe is really true. But of course, the Orthodox say the same thing. But what, what Irenaeus said was the difference is the way we know our deposit of faith, and that's kind of the term he uses, the depo- what we believe we have received from Scripture and tradition, what, the way we know it's right is because of, I don't think he used the word magisterium, but basically because it's been handed on from bishop to bishop. And then he specifically cites the case of Rome. And he said, you know, the, the, the great sea of Rome, we know that, that what, has been handed, what is believed in Rome today was received from the previous bishop and the previous one all the way back here. And he actually lists all the bishops from Peter, all the popes from Peter until his time, which is only like maybe... I don't know, 15 of them or something like that, because like I said, he's writing this in about 160, 170 AD or something like that. And so the point of this is that the deposit of faith is what, what God has revealed to us. And he's revealed to us either through scripture or through tradition. But of course, everything is open to interpretation, right? I mean, what we, we see, you know, the scriptures, obviously, we know the problems of if we all try to interpret this on our own, what happens we get 30,000 denominations all saying they know what the Word of God really says. And the same thing with tradition, because although Protestants would deny that they have a tradition, they really do. I mean, go to a, a, a Protestant church each week. Well, don't actually do this, but go to a Protestant <laughs> church each week. You'll see it's very, it does the same thing every week. They have a tradition that was handed on to them. But the way we know our tradition is the tradition in capital T tradition, what has been handed on since the time of Christ faithfully, is because of the magisterium. So the magisterium is the guardian of that deposit of faith. And so when we use the term faith in this case, we're talking about the content of what the Catholic Church teaches. And of course, like I said, the, actually the intellect that we make of faith, we make them in the deposit of faith, the contents of the deposit of faith. And so if you're, if you're wondering what is in the deposit of faith, like I said, generally if it's in the catechism, it's probably close to, you know, most of it is probably part of the, 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 the kind of the official deposit of faith that you must believe. I think there are probably some in the New Catechism that are maybe more debatable than others. But like I said, if you get uh, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Gott, he just lists them and puts de fide by the ones that are definitive teachings that have kind of been defined. And usually the way we know, I think we talked about this in a previous lesson, whether or not something is de fide and definitely part of the deposit of faith, is through the, the ordinary extraordinary. Yeah, we had that chart from the book of how we receive it. It could be the Pope defining infallibly. It could be a general council defining it infallibly. It could be just basically all the bishops in union with the Pope teaching it for the past 2,000 years. There's different ways we know, but all the things that, that make up are called the deposit of faith. Okay, so those are the five different meanings of the word faith and the four theological and the one kind of just secular or non-theological. Are there any questions about that, about any of these meanings, about faith? Yes? I think what you are just explaining, the deposit of our faith, the content 
Nicene Creed is, is part of that deposit phase, but yes, that is like kind of the core. And of course, things build out from it because, of course, like for example, our belief in the infallibility of papal teaching when it's you know uh, taught authoritatively, that's not in the Nicene Creed, but yet it's still part of the deposit of faith. But you're right that the Nicene Creed is kind of that core of what we believe. I mean, that's kind of the, the fundamental building block. Because if we don't believe in a triune God, if we don't believe that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God and, and everything else the creed says, well, there's not much point in believing the Pope is infallible. So, I mean, it's like it all builds upon it. So, But, but yes, the Nicene creed. creed. But it's not the... Nicene Creed is more of value because it is revealed by Jesus Christ himself. Because well, Jesus didn't give us the Nicene Creed directly no. in his human life. It was given to us, you know, 300 years later through his instruments, the church, through the bishops. But yes, that is like the core of the deposit of faith. But deposit of faith does include more than just that. But the reason we recite it every Sunday at Mass is because of the fact that is a way of us making acts of... We, we were saying we believe in one God. And so we're making an act, of, uh, an act of faith right at that moment we're saying that. Hopefully we believe it. But in a sense, we're making an act of will as well because we're hopefully at Mass giving our life to Him. And we're declaring part of the deposit of faith. And hopefully our, the virtue of faith is helping us. So faith is involved in all its different ways when we uh, recite the Nicene Creed. And yes. can you explain the fide, the in Latin, fide is faith. Yes. And uh, there's two, two kinds of uh, fide. Which are they? I'm not a Latin scholar, so I'm not sure. I mean, I know fide, I mean, maybe Brother Henry could answer that, but I just know, you know, fide means faith, and so de fide means of the faith, meaning it's part of what we have to believe. I mean, maybe, it's, maybe fide is also used in, the, in a belief sense as well in Latin. Just like that, Nicene Creed and everyday creed, uh, creed is different. Right. There's something... Oh, the two different creeds, yeah. yeah. And that's just a development of the Apostles' Creed came first, and that was developed very early on as like what the Church of Rome believed, and it was a way for the whole church to know, here's what Rome believes, and so it's really pretty simple. It doesn't have as, as much elaborate. But then what happened was is years later, people started to challenge things that weren't as clear in the Apostles' Creed. And so they had to define, for example, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and inconsubstantial with the Father. Those were all terms to fight heresies that were happening at that time. And so that, and in fact, the Nicene Creed is actually what we recite on Sundays is, wasn't just from Nicaea, it was actually Nicaea and then a, a, a council like 60 years later in Constantinople that added on the whole part after I believe in the Holy Spirit. All that after that was actually added on a second council because what happened was is first people deny that Jesus was divine, so they have the whole, that's why you have the whole long section in the Nicene Creed saying, you know, he's God from God, light from light, consubstantial with the Father. Well, then they just ended with I believe in the Holy Spirit and kind of left it at that because nobody was really talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, then about 60 years later, there was a group of people in the church who were denying the divinity of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like, okay, we'll give you Jesus, but we're not going to give you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and of course, it makes no sense for Jesus to say, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit if they're not equal. And so they, had, they then added on the uh, part about the Holy Spirit, the, the more defined part about the Holy Spirit in the Nicene Creed. Okay, one more thing I wanted to talk about, then I'll open up for any questions. Uh, and that is one of the things that and I, I briefly touched on earlier. One of the things that is often uh, put in opposition 
is faith and reason. We hear often today that those two things, so faith and then you have reason, are opposites, people say. But really they're not opposites. In fact, there's a, there's a good line, I think it, yeah, it's in the book that says, faith is to revelation as reason is to science. The difference is the object which they're directed towards. So faith is directed towards items of revelation. And sometimes actually, well, that wouldn't be faith then. I was going to say some philosophical thing, but that's really reason. You know, we talked about the beginning of the book, things we can know about God through reason. You don't have to have faith to believe that there's one God. If you, have, if you use your brain properly, not often sin clouds that make this not possible for most people, but if you just use your brain and use reason, you can determine that there is one God and that he created everything. And we, we learned that already. That's using reason. Faith, though, is directed towards revelation, things we can't know through reason alone. Reason, though, is directed towards this world. So in a sense, you could say faith is directed towards uh, the next world or, or the, the, the spiritual world, whereas reason is directed towards the physical world, what you can know through your senses. And so these things are not against each other. So faith is directed towards a supernatural order, reason towards a natural order. I mean, I know recently, like, um, what's that guy's name? Uh, Hawking, Stephen Hawking. I think he died like in the last year or something like that. The guy who's a brilliant physicist and you know, the guy who's in the wheelchair and he, he needed something to help him talk and stuff. But he was a brilliant person and, and just really, really intelligent, knew more about the universe than all of us put together in this room probably. But one of the things he did before he died, he denied the existence of God. In fact, I think he has a, there was a book that came out after he died that he had written before he died, obviously, and, uh, and where he said that God... Uh, you know, God didn't exist. And people took that, oh, see, that's proof God doesn't exist. This really smart guy who knows all about the universe says God doesn't exist. Well, the fact is, so, he's not, you know, our belief in God obviously is reasonable, but his knowledge is just simply the physical world, what he sees. And so, he didn't know the first thing about philosophy, which is part of reason. So there's like three different things you can have, you know, you have your science, you have your philosophy, and then you have your theology, Reason would be philosophy and um, science, whereas faith is directed towards revelation. And so his, he, his brilliance and his reason, Hawking's, was in science, but it wasn't in philosophy. I mean, he, I, he, he contradicted like basic principles of philosophy every time he opened his mouth about religion. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's like, I remember at one time... Uh, I had a priest, he was preaching, and he said, like, when he hears, like, people like Stephen Hawking or people in the news where talk about religion, he says, I, I imagine I feel like, you know, I, I feel like a doctor feels when he watches ER or something like that, when he's, because it's like, it's completely outlandish, and it has nothing to do with it. Um, and so, in fact, that, that was one of the things, this is a dumb aside, but you know, remember the Da Vinci Code, that book that was so stupid, and it had all these, you know, dumb things about religion. What bothered me most, not, maybe not most, but what really bothered me is he had this whole thing about cryptography, and I'm, I'm into that all, and he was so stupid, and it was so like, and I felt like I wasn't sure if I was more offended by his religious ignorance or his cryptography ignorance. I mean, they were both were so screaming, but yet millions of people bought that book. But the point is, it's just because somebody is very good at one of those three things, so, you know, um, uh, science or philosophy or, 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 or theology, doesn't mean they're good at the other ones. Likewise, a scholar in theology, somebody who has you know, a master's degree in theology, 
doesn't that assume he knows anything about science? Doesn't mean I can tell you the first thing about science. So we have to make sure. So that's why with reason, it covers the object as the natural order. So philosophy and science. Faith covers the supernatural order, revelation. And so the last thing I want to say about the relationship between the two is faith does build upon reason. Our faith is not unreasonable. That's one of the big lies that we hear is you either use your reason or you use your faith. Because obviously, if you look at how things are, you can't believe in God. That's what somebody would say. So it's unreasonable. You're just, you know, that faith that makes you feel good. That's not true. Your faith is built upon the foundation of reason in the sense that, you know, philosophy tells us that there is a God. There's nothing that reason teaches, that we learn through reason, that contradicts the faith. And so there's no reason to feel like just because you believe something science, you know, it wouldn't be faith. In fact, I think one of my lessons I'm doing next semester is on creation. And so we'll talk a little bit about that, how, um, you know, the, the belief in creation, that's where you see it the most. People say, well, you know, we know from science how, how the world was created and it has nothing to do with God. So it's unreasonable to have faith that God's created the universe. But that's not true. They're not, they don't contradict each other at all. Okay, so, and also to remember is... Reason, even though we, we talk about reason as something different from faith, if you think about it, reason is completely based upon this first definition of faith. Because the only reason you know anything is because somebody has taught you. You almost know nothing through your own personal experience. And so everything you know about the world comes to you because somebody taught you, which means you trusted them, which means you had faith in them. You didn't try to prove it. Like to use the example to be in a class... I believe that you know, China exists, and I'm using my reason. I don't have to have faith, like in a theological sense, to believe that China exists. I just use my reason to say, well, it's reasonable to assume China exists because all these different people say it exists. I've seen pictures where people say this is China. I've got this whole history I've learned about China. So yeah, it's reasonable to believe that, that um, China exists. When it comes to items of faith, it's similar in, like, for example, the idea that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Reason cannot prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Reason alone cannot prove to us that Jesus rose from the dead. However, reason can tell us that all the evidence points to the fact that the only reasonable explanation for everything that happened after Jesus died is that he rose from the dead. Because any other explanation you give that the, the apostles you know, dug up his corpse or something or they had some hallucination or they made it up you know, 50 years later, whatever it is, all those explanations are unreasonable. They fall apart. The only one that is reasonable is that Jesus rose from the dead. However, it does take an act of faith to really accept that because a resurrection of a dead person by their own power from the dead is not something in our experience. And so it's not something that science proves to us is possible. In fact, science tells us that once you're dead, you're dead. And so... Again, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's reasonable to believe that because it's the only plausible explanation, but it does take an act of faith because you're going against what your own experience, your normal experience is, that people just don't rise from the dead. Okay, any questions about faith and reason or about faith or anything like that? Eric? Yes? Do you remember once uh, Brother Henry was talking about uh, God's existence and how Point into one thing, and someone was asking 
about reason that many times other people's thinking is different to another one. And they said, well, for me, <coughs> my truth is not this, and your truth is not my truth. Someone was asking right. that. I don't remember who. You? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that made me think all this time, I said, why? Somebody said my truth and your truth, but we're only one truth. Right. To the right. <coughs> According to Brother Brent, we do. Yeah. Only one. No, but you're right. And, and, and where that comes in is... Right. Well, it's, it's unreasonable to think about, to think there's more than one truth. Because again, this is, um, theology is what faith does, and this is philosophy and um, science. I know you could say philosophy is a science. Can't spell whenever I'm on the whiteboard. But anyway, well, philosophy is what tells us that two contradictory things cannot both be true at the same time. The principle of non-contradiction, and so that's philosophy. So that's reason. So when somebody says that's true for you and that's, but it's not true for me, they don't need to have faith, and you don't even need to have faith to, to show that they're wrong. You basically just need to understand, you know, some basic philosophy and and study how two things can't that are contradictory to each other can't both be true. And, but what, what, the reason people are saying that's true for you but not true for me is they simply don't want to engage you. They don't want to engage your truth, quote-unquote, because they know if they do, they might have to change their life. And so it's like a way to just get out of it. I mean, it's kind of like the, the problem of our age. You know, 100 years ago or more, if you make a claim about God or something, you know, an atheist will... If they, you know, they'll attack you and they'll, they'll say why it's not true and they'll, they'll claim they're, they're true, they're right. Yeah. Well, now it's just like most people just say, well, that's nice for you and I believe this and that's what I believe. Because again, we look at faith in this kind of idea of something without proof. Well, you don't have any proof for your faith and I don't have any proof for mine, but we all just believe it make ourselves feel good. But that's not at all, of course, what faith is. Yeah. And that goes against philosophy because if I say, I believe this podium, I have my hands on this podium, and you say, no, you don't have them on right now. Well, you're wrong. I mean, there's just no other way around it. You're not, it's not true for you, but not true for me. Now it's true for you. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Just kind of a comment. So isn't it partly because also that, I don't know when, but at some point the sciences were listed in an order? So like theology and philosophy are at the top, yeah, I mean, that's a great, great way to put it. Yes, I mean, people considered theology as the top science, really, and philosophy right below it. And things like the natural sciences were below that. Because really, if you think about it, that's what it's leading to. Because, I mean, this isn't exactly how it works in, in, for most people. But in a sense, that's how you kind of move up. If you learn about the world first as a child, and you learn about how the world operates and stuff, what that, that's the first thing. That's the natural sciences. Then you start to learn that, okay, well... If there's all these great things, philosophy starts to tell you, well, there must be a supreme being that created it all. Now you believe there's a supreme being. And so now you're like, okay, what do I know about the supreme being? And then you find out that, oh, he's revealed himself. And so now you're up to theology. So you've kind of gone all the way up top. But you're right. What happens today is theology and philosophy are kind of just shunted aside, like in most schools or something. And in most ways you teach, it's just like, it's like a side 
It's almost an elective. You know, I mean, you could take you know, home ec or you could take theology, whichever one you feel like. And the, but really what the, the, the crown is is the natural sciences today. And really, that, that, you're right, that's a great way to put it. That's inverted from, from reality. So, any other questions? Now, I'm supposed to open up for questions about anything in the entire time we've been teaching. So, anything else? Because Brother Brent's, I mean, sorry, Brother Henry's staying here, so, you know, he can answer them. <laughs> yeah. tell Look at that. Story, tell, tell a story. Tell your story. It's interesting how you came to your story. Yeah, I, I became Catholic in college, and uh, I was a very uh, practicing, devout, evangelical Christian, Protestant. Like I said, I made a decision for Christ at a university in, in Indiana when I was in high school. And I got, what, what my downfall was was getting involved with the pro-life group because it was a bunch of Catholics. <laughs> and so really working with them over the course of about two or three years, I was like literally the only Protestant who was active in the group. This was in the early 90s. And so a lot of activism and stuff like that. And so I had a, a, a good friend, my roommate, and one of, uh, he, you, you had a class with him, right? one of Brother Henry's uh, professors at Hillsdale now. And, um, but he basically uh, kind of pushed me towards the Catholic Church. And so it was over time just learning about what the faith, what they believe. And I remember one key moment was when, I was very disturbed because I was Methodist, that the Methodist Church was pro-abortion. They've actually gotten a little better, believe it or not, in recent years. But at the time, they were very pro-abortion. And a lot of Protestant churches were. And so I wanted to find another church, another Protestant denomination that was pro-life. I mean, I wouldn't become Catholic. I mean, good Lord. Um, so I, I was looking at them, but I was kind of like thinking to myself, well, what would keep them from changing? I mean, Methodist Church was pro-life until like the late 70s, so I could join the Evangelical Free Church, but who's to say it won't be? Or the Southern Baptist, who's to say it won't be pro-abortion one day? And so I asked my friend, Nate, I said, well, how do you know the Catholic Church uh, won't, be, you know, won't eventually become pro-abortion? And he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot on earth. And he was like... <laughs> Dude, it just won't. <laughs> and it was like the best answer. I mean, it's the best apology answer ever because he had complete faith and certainty that the Catholic Church couldn't change its teaching on abortion. And so I remember that was a big deal to me. Like, okay, now all of a sudden the, the Catholic Church came in my orbit of something. That's not the only reason I became Catholic, but that made it in the orbit. I hear kids starting to come down. I will not disappoint my daughter. So let's end in a, in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Philip Neri. Blessed John Henry Newman. Pray for us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.